This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. Yeah, Dr. and... Wood. and oh, Dr. Wood, rather. Do you, you want to tell everyone you're present with, like, a second Kabanak member? Oh, yes, we've got, we got a third... Ka- no, second Kabanak in Well, the, in, in the studio. In least. the studio, but hopefully she won't make too much noise because she's quite young. But I thought yeah. it's important for the youth to understand what's going on in this country. Sure. And the best way to do that is to listen to us. Of and since this is an economics podcast, you've got to start them young. Five months old, man. That's it. That's when you start. All right. So if you hear some uh, noise in the background, that's not the transgender movement moaning about not being allowed into the U.S. military. It is Ramon's offspring. Indeed. All right. Good. And um, what else is potting? Well, I mean, I think I think no one should join the army. If I was a trans person, I'd be like, you know what? Let's take eight years off. Let's just hang around, stay at home. If World War Three comes on, I'd be like. Dude, I'm trans. I'm not allowed. Mm. Let the other kids go and play and sure. shoot. Sure, sure. But when the military does offer you free stuff, you know it's it, it is quite an incentive to go there. I mean, if you you know if you're a lady and you want a boob job, then it's a good idea to go to the military because if a psychologist can prove that this is to your detriment, not having a boob job, military will pay for it. Oh, that's so. Well, yeah. apparently the, that's like, how the system even, works. Even the, the transitions are mm. like. Between two and eight million dollars. No, no, they're not that much. I actually looked it up. The whole budget is ten billion. Thirty-five thousand dollars on average to uh, do gender reassignment. No, but I'm saying in the military, oh, the gender reassignment in, surgery, in total in total is between oh, three and eight sure. million dollars, which is cents on the dollar when the whole budget is ten billion. Sure, sure. So but I it, understand it, this medical cost thing that mm, Trump was on about. But then again, what as you know. I don't give a fuck. Well, he is I cutting, really just quickly on Trump, he is cutting back on spending. Uh, I know everyone thinks he's Satan. And of course, um, you know, the, 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 the Russians hacked the election, which they blatantly didn't do. Um, it, definitely not the word hacked, at least. Uh, but he's also, I don't know if you saw, he's, for every law they're now passing, there are 16 being repealed. Well, I think there's every regulation passed, there's two. No, no, it's Repeal. 1 to 16 1 at the moment, 16, no. apparently. So some good things coming from that administration, some not so good things. Uh, but uh, here this week to talk about economics and stupid things going on in our country, we maybe should start with this because um, Soundbite Moosey, um, which will be his name going forward which, as far as I'm concerned. Which was derived from our Facebook group, by yes, the way. Yes, we, we, we do give credit. Uh, hold on, hold on. The guest wants to talk out of turn. Yes, yes. What was that? Uh, it sounded like Moosey was joining you for the podcast, the, the way you, the way you um, No, 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 no. No, <laughs> a soundbite Moosey is not here. Unfortunately, he doesn't have enough soundbites to take up a full hour, usually only a 15 to 20 minute uh, diatribe in Parliament where he says all the right things and then goes on to actually do none of them in his own party. <laughs> right. So um, he earlier this week turns around and goes, he wants a sovereign wealth tax. Uh, no, our guest, a sovereign wealth fund. Well, how by, how will he get by there? taxing sure. the rich? Sure. Our guest this week, Russell Lamberti. We've had him on before. Welcome. Yeah, it's good to be here, guys. Thank well, you. Welcome back uh, from the Republic of Cape Town. Mm. Hope it treats you well. Um, for anyone who is unaware, yeah. it's going to be a separate country soon. <laughs> so move down or like get some property. Not that something. soon. Two decades. Two if, decades. If you don't know Russ, he's uh, he's he's uh, an economist and and an author, and a number of other things amongst being a, a libertarian as well. And a ferocious tweeter. Yeah, so um, always always great to chat with him, wonderful insights. 
you spoke last night. We'll get to to Musi and his and his sort of idea. Um, you spoke last night at the Free Market Foundation. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners might have attended that. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about what you said? Yeah, I do. Let me let me start by saying we've got a sleep deprived anaesthetist, an economist, and a lawyer. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and a baby in the studio. <laughs> so let's let's see how we go. Uh, three men and a baby. Three men and a baby. Exactly. You won't get this on mainstream media. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to digress very briefly, I think it is correct to, to say that he actually is calling for a sovereign wealth tax, and I actually think that's how we need to talk about it because. We need to get the linguistics right on this thing, and it's uh, and it's absolute nonsense what he's proposing. We'll get there. But uh, last night I had a very fruitful and productive time at Free Market Foundation, hosted by Leon Lowe and, and his gang of uh, freedom fighters, and uh, it was great. We had a probably about an hour and fifty minute session with you know including Q and A, which was really good. And the the topic of uh, my talk was was uh, South Africa failing economy, life after the downgrade, and a Venice-Zimbabwe scorecard. And so I really just split the um, <laughs> I, I split the talk up into a couple of sections, basically just dealt with what I think is a very insidious form of um, socialism and Marxism that we have in our country right now, how that provides the kind of underpinning for a lot of the underperformance uh, economically that we've seen since 2008-9. Uh, went into just talking about... Um, how South Africa is coping with the downgrade um, and, and you know, the economics around that because it's actually not as bad as people think. There's a, there's a lot of kind of mythical thinking around that, uh, bad thinking, and then finished on sort of pitting us against the basket cases of Zimbabwe and Venezuela and where are we kind of on that continuum. And, uh, again, you know, I think I think that some balance and some, some realism is, is required in that discussion mm. because uh, it does get a little bit out of hand. People get a little bit... Um, pessimistic on on things and and uh, the reality is that we're nowhere near the kind of sort of decrepitude and, and and corruption that you need to get into those levels of extreme sort of economic depravity however you know we can a, get there we can get there um and clearly moving towards there is worse than moving away from there right so um so yeah it was a it was a great talk and uh had a, yeah, had a really good time yeah, ironically, we're not anywhere near as bad because people are maybe too incompetent to implement their policies correctly. But nevertheless, Russell, since you're here, let's talk about uh, socialism 2.0. Yeah. So this is something I heard from you for the very first time. Classically, socialism was about the state owning the means of production and somehow that is equal mm. for everyone. Equally shit, mostly. But uh, but you have this uh, a relatively new concept about socialism that is not about ownership as such, but about control. Expand on that a little bit, please. Whether it's uh, genuinely an original thought by me or, or something that I've picked up through sort of reading osmosis and, and assimilation, but but basically, um, you know, every theoretical framework improves through time, right? It gets refined. It gets refined by the fire of practical reality. Uh-huh. And that was, uh, that, that's, that applies very much so to Marxism, right? So, um, you had an underpinning ideology in, in the Bolshevik Revolution that said we need to seize, we need to literally physically seize the means of production and yeah. control and own the means of production. And so what it created was this brutally totalitarian and authoritarian and oppressive you know, system and, and regime. Um, and, of course, by as, as Jordan Peterson so expertly points out, by the 1950s and 60s, it, it was shown to be you know, utterly uh, an utter failure. 
And uh, you had this very, very – and so that was the refining by fire, if you like, of, of that initial ideology. And you had this very, very shrewd and clever pivot um, spearheaded, I guess, by the postmodernists who um, started shifting um, the way we think about the Marxian ideas. And so I think that there were two very clever pivots that were made that have ushered us into what I would call socialism 2.0 or Marxism 2.0. Um, the the one is <clears throat> that you don't need to own the means of production. Ownership is more than a title deed, right? Ownership is effective control. <clears throat> if I've got a title deed to my house, but some gangster tells me exactly how I can live in it, you know, what color I can paint it, hmm. uh, and so on, he effectively owns the house. And so this idea of regulatory socialism, uh, von Mises rather prosaically in today's language called it uh, interventionism. Um, which is really just this idea that through a web of regulations and control, you gain effective ownership of the means of production. If you look at something like the mining charter right now in South Africa, the proposed mining charter, but even the one that's in place, um, we have we have a form of socialism. Uh, government. I mean, I would shudder to 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 think what the life of a procurement officer is like in a big mining company, um, to navigate that web of regulatory sludge. <clears throat> And, and the minute you just about get your your handle on it, um, uh, you know, it changes again. It changes again, or you know, the supplier that you're buying from that's twenty five percent BE compliant suddenly changes to another kind of BE compliancy, and <clears throat> the BE codes change. So that fundamentally changes the mining sector. I mean, it's an absolute mess. So, it's a very very insidious form of of state control, and a much cleverer one, right? Because you don't have to go and actually seize factories and then make them profitable. You keep those in the hands of the entrepreneurs and the, and the capitalists. You make them think that uh, that they're the ones, you know, owning <laughs> the resources and actually working, and, and you give them the burden of actually, well, there we go. <laughs> it's because I'm talking about Marxism. I mean, what baby wants to have Marxism shoved in their ears? <laughs> um, so you... You uh, very cleverly put the burden of profitability in the hands of the capitalists, whom you blame for everything, you know, uh, and for not paying mm. enough taxes and so on. Yeah. And you have effective control through regulation. And the second pivot um, is this very, very insidious idea, and this is where the postmodernists came in. You, you know, under under Marxism, Leninism, the fundamental antagonism, social antagonism, was proletarian bourgeois, bourgeoisie, right? The the worker kind of wealth class uh, conflict except what started to happen in the in the capitalist economies and even to some extent in the communist countries is that people who were working class graduated into the middle class and people who were middle class graduated into the wealthy the very wealthy class there was upward mobility there was significant upward mobility to the point where people's desire for this class antagonism was disappearing and this was a I think a very much an existential crisis for the theory and what was very clever and very insidious by the postmodernists was to set up class antagonisms that can't be surmounted. So, you know, worker bourgeois bourgeoisie can be surmounted, but black white can't be surmounted. Mm. Um, set up male, power, female. male female can't be surmounted. I mean, you know, some people would dispute that, but let's let's just say that they've set up. Well, it's all fluid unless you. Unless you male, Correct. and then you can't. Yeah, yeah. You're but, not ready but to. In, in the power analysis, in the Marxian power analysis, they've set up antagonisms that are eternal. It's very clever, and it's yeah, very and that's the um, uh, uh, original sin argument, the religion of of, of postmodernism. 
Peter Bogosian talks quite a bit about this, but essentially that no matter, you know, if you're a white male, you are born with original sin because you have white privilege, you have male privilege, mm. and you will never expunge your white male privilege. And basically the only way you have any hope of doing that is to surrender at the, alt- at the altar of, of identity politics your entire life where you kind of admit to these things. You never really give up any of your so-called privileges. That's an important aspect. Yeah. Um, but you surrender at, at the altar of, of identity politics. Yeah. And because you've done that, maybe you will be forgiven for your sins and allowed into the group slash heaven. Which we know is fallacious because the minute you take that path, you get hated even more anyway, it seems. Yeah, well, I mean, at some point, at some point, you will do something wrong, and then they will eat you alive. Um, well, as, as Jordan Peterson notes, these things just cave back in on themselves, right? Because there's there's all sorts of sub- subcategories of categories, and there's a there's a conflict, there's an eternal conflict. I mean, it's essentially, you know, if you think of liberty, you know, the idea of capitalism under the rule of law, it's essentially a philosophy of cooperation and of uh, mutual benefit. Mm. Um, and, and it accords, you know, it's, it's not to say that every interaction in human existence is not combative. Of course, of course it is. And of course we do have conflict. And in, in, in some ways, w- that's the point. We're trying to design a system that can cope with conflict well and can channel it into as much cooperation as possible. And, um, and, and Marxism is just a theory of conflict, basically. It just pits people against each other. And so you, how can you have anything other than chaos from that kind of underpinning theory? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's socialism 2.0, and they've they've. Oh, Ramon, Ramon wants to say something. Sorry, I, I wasn't sure which cabinet wanted to talk. Oh no, it's, it's me this time. Uh, <laughs> I don't interrupt guests normally. Uh, but sorry, if I may just ask Russell, a, a good example of socialism 2.0 in South Africa. Okay, you got the mining chancer, you got B, you got all those things, ostensibly for transformation purposes so it's all flowery and it sounds good but at the heart of it what are they actually trying to do oh well i think i think it's been pretty pretty clear that um you know i mean i think you can say this with with any marxist socialist state that for every pure theoretician who wants to genuinely try and achieve some sort of utopia there's 10 kleptocrats who jump in on that ideology what a, what a great ideology to to jump in on and and you know so so i really think we should even talk about and, and i think in essence marxism inevitably tends towards klepto a kleptocratic system and so i talk about klepto marxism <clears throat> um and i think that that's essentially one and the same thing i don't think you can have a, a, a Marxist you know, underpinning ideology, a socialist state, without it becoming, you know, uh, irretrievably corrupt. Um, the the other thing I would just say quickly is that technically, because I, I didn't mention on on the last uh, little answer, <clears throat> technocratic socialism is insidious, and it's not just a South African problem. It's everywhere, and you know, the big sleight of hand that's happened here, right, is that the Berlin Wall came down, and the overt, obvious oppressive you know soviet union and the and the yugoslavias of the world and so on mm. crumbled and and so there was this idea that that communism and marxism is dead <clears throat> and the irony the great irony is that the east germans then flood into what is 
in the process of becoming a, a technocratic socialist European Union, right? Mm. 25 years later. Yeah. And so, and so it's a very, very interesting <clears throat> sort of uh, social dynamic that's happened. And you can now see in Europe, right? Who are the socialists in Europe and who are the free market guys? The socialists are all in the West. Yeah. And, and the Eastern Europeans are all free market guys <laughs> who've actually lived under this stuff and see where it takes you. And then, yeah. and, and for me, from a political economy perspective, the, the Eastern Europeans seem much more astute and, and much more with well, it. In even in their of, political decisions, they're, yeah. you know, non-economic. Well, everything's economically related yeah. ultimately. But uh, you take Poland and their, their, or Hungary and, and their view on refugees, uh, yeah. for example, uh, and the, the, the sort of very heavy-handed stance they've taken. <clears throat> completely different to the rest of Europe. Um, the rest of Europe's quite pissed with them, actually. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why Trump gets such a good reception in Eastern Europe, right? Because even though, you know, for all his flaws and, you know, for all his, you know, wonky theories on trade and so on, um, what he's done is tap into a visceral understanding that a lot of people can't articulate that this technocratic elite is cocking things up. Mm. Well, um, and, and I think he... I think that gets resonance in, in Eastern Europe as he pushes back against what they see happening in, 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 in Western Europe because Trump mm. is basically your anti-European Union guy, right? I mean, to a large extent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, correct me if you, if you think I'm mistaken, but, you know, you describe the Berlin Wall and, and obviously to me it seems like, you know, socialism happens in, in the early sort of 20th century. <clears throat> it results in the massacre of many, many people. Um it it uh, so the West becomes enlightened to this, and they yeah. sort of say, "This is bad." Just to say, the first the first big socialist uh, de- bloodbath was the French Revolution. Yeah, let's 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 jump ahead. Yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but fair enough. But formally, got you. Yep. As as socialism, um, the West then sees this and goes, "This is a very bad thing." Um, <clears throat> creates its own system, democracy, free markets, etc. Uh, or not creates it, but buys into that system. Uh, socialism then retreats to the areas where it has support. Um, then by the time the Berlin Wall comes down, the rest of the world, including the places where it had support, are kind of going, this doesn't work. You know, the, the old socialism doesn't work. Then people say it's not real socialism. Then they enact socialism and then they say, and then it doesn't work. And then they yeah. say it's not real socialism. That yeah. vicious circle. Um, so to me, socialism then does something interesting, which is they change their weapon. So they realize that the world is not going to buy the concept of uh, us controlling entire countries as uh, specific figures or with a specific ideology we teach in schools. And they change their weapon to be culture. And they've now managed – and look, this comes from the Frankfurt School, obviously, and happened over decades. But socialists now control a large part of the world and certainly many powerful countries. The United States, for example, you can argue is partially a socialist country. Certainly um, states like New York. um, I I think they're they're in the – the thick of technocratic socialism. Yeah. No question. Um, and that's because people have been told something which they believe are cultural or social norms, and yeah. they've been taught that, and they believe that is the right way to do things. And those things that have been taught are social, social, socialist theory. Yeah. It's Marxism. Um, and I think, you know, Trump and, and all of this other stuff that goes on is <clears throat> people who don't buy into socialism reacting to that 
and the way, the only way they, they know how, which is, you know, in the US example is electing this sort of really <clears throat> sort of off the page yeah. kind of guy yeah. to, to, to lead them who at least will fight back in some way against this ideology. And because it's not a physical wall anymore, yeah. it's so difficult to know yeah. how to do that. Yeah. And I mean, we might even look back one day and see the election of Trump as this very sort of facile attempt to, to counter this very powerful, you know, technocratic socialist system that we have. Right. And, yeah. and I've, I've, you know, come more and more around to the view, but you know, this has been in essence, my thinking for quite a while through this is that Trump is, is essentially a kind of a battering ram. And, and he, and he is, he's, he's a, He's a bit like a Molotov cocktail in, in Washington, right? I mean, he um, he shatters norms. Um, and he people, says things you can't say. He says things you can't say. He said, you know, and it's but you know, it's quite ironic and quite funny because people say that they that they want a different kind of president. You know, they say <laughs> they they pay lip service to the fact, oh, we've had all these boring white male presidents. Then they got Obama. And he was actually a boring white male president. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, and, okay. And, that'll trigger some people. And, um, and then they got a genuinely different person. It, it comes, it, it's, it, it's, it's actually a mirror of this diversity rubbish on, on campuses, right? They want, they want diversity of skin color, but you know, God forbid you give them diversity of thought. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, so I think Trump, um, shows you that when, when you genuinely try and shatter the mold, um, there's a lot of people who are very comfortable in our current system. They're, uh, they've either got a decent job, they, they enjoy the stability of, you know, of you know, wherever they're at. There's a lot of people on welfare, tons of people mm. on welfare and subsidies. They think it works. Um, loads of government employees, loads of, you know, sub industries that are, that are sucking essentially at wash on Washington's teat and so on and so on. These, this is, a, this is a very big class of people and you saw with Brexit as well. It's this group of people that really get extremely pissed off when things don't go their way. And it's quite ironic because it's this group of people that keep saying, Oh, we better watch out for the pitchforks of the, of the poor folk who are going to run into town with the pitchforks. The pitchforks never arrive. These, these poor folk in the countryside are calm, uh, law abiding and they just vote and they vote for Trump, you know, or Brexit <laughs> or Brexit. And, um, and, and it's these elites that get so utterly infuriated and, and go mad on social media and Twitter and actually, you know, the, and, and, and part of their little vanguard is this, these Antifa kind of leftist, you know, crazies who, who, who literally go and break stuff in the streets and, and mm. the, the, this big right wing, crazy right wing assault that we're, that we're supposed to be expecting any day now just never arrives because they're in church or something, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that <laughs> tends to happen when you demonize, uh, language. So, you know, the minute you say the word conservative, for example, uh, anywhere in the world, that generally has more negative connotations than positive connotations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if, if no, well, the right wing is on the internet, yeah. man. We but, are not right wing in, in the classical sense, but yeah. we expose ideas here. And it's fast. Well, I mean, here. I think, I think this is a point though, right? So, so I the, don't need to so, go in the streets so, of Santon. Sorry. Yeah. So the right, you know, the right has, the right has shifted. Way left because the left has gone so far left. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, so the center has shifted. And so, like, if you're a classical liberal now and you don't think that, you know, sports teams should be selected on, on racial criteria, you're some kind of right wing guy now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so everything's shifted. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, the, the politics of, of what we're seeing is very interesting. My, 
putting my analyst hat on and kind of looking into the future, you know, we're going to look back and in 50 years' time, Trump will be a, a relatively small aberration, I think. But he's part of the start, I think, of a longer process of change that is now happening in the West. And essentially, and I've said this to you guys before on, on the Facebook group, uh, we're seeing the death of the welfare state, basically. And, um, and, and this technocratic socialist system, which is, uh, you know, which is part of this welfare state and so on, it's basically going bankrupt and it's basically failing. And that's going to be a very ugly and prolonged process. And the politics through that process, I think, is going to be volatile and messy. Is it ugly and prolonged because the people who want it to continue obviously don't want their empire to die? Um, or is it just because it's it's so insidious and so large? Uh, you take something – I just think of the NHS, for example, yeah, yeah. in the UK. You know, The religion um, of the NHS. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know they've done multiple surveys in the UK. Yeah. You can ask most UK citizens the best yeah. part of being a British citizen, and they will tell you it's the NHS. I mean, um, I mean even at the Olympic – Yes, I was just about to <laughs> they put, say – They know, had an NHS float. I mean, it was like – Well, on, yeah. So they had a, about five minutes in the opening ceremony of the Olympics <laughs> with children jumping on – you know, cancer children jumping on beds, uh, these giant oversized beds. Um, oh, and, you know, as a tribute to the NHS, um, as if, you know, other healthcare systems and private systems don't also save cancer-ridden children. Yeah. Uh, I remind you that if you need fancy treatment, you can't find it in the UK. You have to uh, raise money to go to the US or, yeah. or some European country to a private clinic. Um, but, yeah, things like but, the NHS. But they love the NHS. Yeah. They love it. And, and, and it's such a part of their culture. And they've been indoctrinating, you know, uh, just as you will find um, – indoctrination in say the middle east with regards to the treatment of women or the treatment of people who are not like you in, in religion or whatever it may be you will find the same indoctrination in british schools about the nhs and how amazing it is yes. so you have people you know all through the ages who will fight for this system which is clearly failing yeah um, and is slowly dying it's it's getting worse by the policies of some of the same people who say well just let everyone in we must not be yeah. um yeah. you know we must not worry about immigration yeah. um so if we let people in who will never find work and won't do jobs that's not a problem the nhs will also cover them yeah with because they've all been sold this idea of free health care <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you know so, so money is no issue exactly the, the point you're getting at there right and i think it's very important is and it comes down to a painful truth for guys like us, which is that most people, most people, even though if you probe them hard enough and you get them one-on-one -on -one and, you, and you talk a bit of sense into them, but most people basically think that these welfare states and that the way that their countries are run is good. They like it. They've been indoctrinated to it. That, 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 that's what the schools have, have taught them. Um, as we say, I mean, the NHS is... is pretty much the biggest religion in the UK, you know, ahead of the Church of England, you know. Um, and so and so I think that one of, the, one of the reasons why it's so prolonged and painful is you, you've hit the nail on the head. You, you actually just said it better than I'll be able to say it, which is that there is so much emotional and intellectual and financial commitment to these socialist programs and to these welfare programs. Now, here's the... The crazy part is that this isn't up to this isn't a democratic choice, right? In the sense that, yes, we can democratically kind of eventually we can choose to have these sorts of systems, but we can't democratically choose whether they work or not. Reality decides that, right? Yeah. 
So you have a whole bunch of people who basically get on board with these things. I mean, the NHS probably polls at like 60, 70, 80%, maybe more mm. approval rate. Yeah, right? for sure. Um, Canada um, is another example. Yeah. They voted, they had a vote, countrywide vote a few years back. The greatest Canadian ever to live. There's a, quite a couple of them. Canada, I mean, you know, yeah. they've done some decent things. Yeah. I mean, there was a, the, I think their greatest Canadian is a sniper who hit someone at 3,200 <laughs> meters. But, um, um, they, the guy they voted for was the guy who invented their health system, yeah. their socialist health system. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that that sums it up. And and you, as much as we rail against government, and and I'm you know at the front of that charge, you have to also say that there's a problem with the people, right? There's a problem with people who ultimately um, allow these things to happen. And if the NHS topples one day and creates the most catastrophic crisis in in history in the UK, it will be everyone just about everyone's fault, right? Because yeah. they've all signed up for this thing, you know, all the way through. So, so my point is, yes, as as this as reality exerts itself, it's almost not about democracy anymore. It's not about what you vote for anymore. Reality is now just asserting itself on these countries. Mm. They're in stagnation. They're being forced to print money. To, I mean, you know, printing money is the is a classic sign of a failing system. Yeah, we have to print more money out of thin air to keep this thing going. Like, yeah. okay, the system is not doing very well, guys. Yeah. So. Um, so kind of classic signs of failure, and I just think uh, most people ha- are being blindsided by it, and that's the angst that you're seeing now. What? Yeah, so, I mean, so so we just discussed uh, technical socialism, technocratic socialism yes, at an international level. Uh, but locally, I mean, let's talk about the, the Reserve Bank, for example. Is that a, a classic sign of just more control? Because the thing with the Reserve Bank, Zuma controls who is the governor, for example. The, as you said before the podcast, the finance minister determines the inflation targeting. They already got control anyway. So, yeah. so what's, what's the deal with that? With the public protector saying yeah. they must change their mandate, but. I think, I think they want more control. So, so, so central banks are, are controlled by states. However, um, they're, they're a, they're a quasi-state, quasi-private sort of institution in the sense that, and I don't even, I don't even, I'm not even talking about Saab shareholders who, I think ultimately don't matter in the grand scheme of things per se. Um, but, you know, I, if you have a central bank, like, f- first of all, let's just get, get this out there. You don't need a central bank, right? <laughs> central banks are, are, um, are, are the cartel, the banking, they're the, 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 the head of the banking cartel designed uh, purely to bail banks out. It would be like manufacturers having a manufacturing central bank. And and um, and to pass sort of illogical regulation, like you can't take X amount of money out of the country yeah, and yeah, bring no, X in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so they they set it up as a node of extraction, as a node of regulation. It's another and, and of course the, the the main reason for for the state you know needing control of the central bank is it's the money pot, right? Um, it's the one institution that's licensed to print money, and this is you know this is goes this is goes goes to some important. Deep philosophy here, right? Because if you've got the genuine rule of law, then everyone is equal before the law. So I can also print money then. No, I can't. <laughs> Only the Reserve Bank can. So we don't have the rule of law. So we've got, you know, we've got the rule of man. We've got favoured uh, legal classes in this country, and certainly, uh, so, so we don't need a central bank. But if you have a central bank, then there's two kinds of central bank that you can have. You can have a, you know, mostly um, market. Orientated, market responsive, for lack of a better term, bankers central bank. And you can have, or, or you can have a politician central bank, <clears throat> where it becomes essentially a money pot for thieving hands. 
which is what any hyperinflationary system essentially boils down to. It's a bunch of politicians thieving money from the printing press. And that's what we've obviously got in Venezuela now, and it's certainly something, certainly what we had in Zimbabwe in uh, dramatic extreme. So uh, when it comes to SA, I think the, the, the simple answer to Roman's question is, yes, the state controls the central bank. Yes, the, the, the president can appoint the, the governor of the, of the Reserve Bank. It's about getting more control. It's a, now the constitutional, the proposed constitutional amendment is uh, unnecessary in a sense if you're trying to capture the central bank. Um, but I think it's the ANC testing uh, the pulse of of these ideas and basically trying to close in on on an institution where there is money when money is running out in the country. Yeah. All right. So just quickly on the Reserve Bank idea. <laughs> Any places that don't have reserve banks that are successful? I'm just being devil's advocate. Someone's yeah. going to go, well, you know, reserve banks are part of the part and parcel mm. of functioning countries. Okay, so um, I'll give you a very good example of a country that's successful without a central bank, and it's called the United States of America pre-1913. Uh, probably the the, the the largest and most impressive period of collective prosperity in a country we've ever seen. Um, so no central banks pre 1900s, very very minimal central bank functions. Um, huge uh, prosperity growth through the 1800s. Uh, you get a central bank in 1913. And it's not long before you're going to war because you can print up all your war financing. It's not long before you've got the Great Depression. It's not long before you've got World, World War II. It's not long before you've got uh, the perma war and welfare state of the 1960s and 70s, which was all central bank funded essentially or enabled. So so I think the central bank has been a, an unmitigated force for, so, for, for bad. So the central bank in any country sounds like it allows the government to do whatever they like – if in a normal situation, in other words, without a central bank, they wouldn't be able to do that because the market forces wouldn't allow them to. It would be so much harder, right? So, so let's think about what it's like to go to war without a central bank. You've actually got to, you've actually got to say to your people that you've got to convince your taxpayers and your funders to pay for the war. To pay for the war, and 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 therefore, the war. You've got to have a really good rationale for the war. Um, are we going to, you know, are we going to earn this money back? You know, are are the objectives we're achieving in this war worthwhile? Objectives. You know, if we're being attacked yeah. and we're going to get wiped out. Whereas the way they currently be. do it is they get the central bank to fund the war, and then after the bill comes through, they just give it to the taxpayers. Exactly. So, so it's it's kind of like a, a prepaid, a prepaid method. <laughs> <laughs> um, or actually, not. No, actually, t- tax funded would be a prepaid method. It's more of a contract method. So, so uh, you know, the the central bank has enabled. Uh, dramatic. This is the essence of it, right? As well, and this is why the central bank is genuinely core to to, to a liberal, classical liberal program, core as in uh, core opposition, because it enables dramatic growth of the size of in the size of the state. It allows the government to tap into sources of funding that it would never otherwise be able to get, um, and so. But now, of course, you know once once you invent the central bank, it becomes globally ubiquitous because politicians think it's a yeah. fantastic that's the, idea. That's the way it is, and yeah. people also. That's the way it is. People just buy into it as um, an as an idea. The great uh, the great libertarian utopia of Somalia um, hasn't had a central bank for a very long time. Now, people get things wrong, right? Because they say Somalia, what a what a hellhole. You know, look at Sweden. 
the, the correct comparison is not between Somalia and Sweden. The correct comparison is between Somalia after it lost its government and Somalia before it lost its government. And before it lost its government, uh, development indicators actually improved between when it uh, had a government to when it didn't have a government. Um, there was, in many respects, more peace in Somalia. And certainly from a currency perspective, it's been a very free um, uh, free market for currency, and uh, all sorts of infrastructure has has been built, and 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 that country has operated pretty successfully for Somalia, right? Yeah. Um, you're not you're not going to compare that to Sweden. Uh, the Swedes could do way better if they had a 10% of GDP government than than if they got a 40% of GDP government. So, so that's the correct comparison, I think. Uh, well, bottom line is we sorry, don't need a central bank. Sorry to interrupt. I think the correct comparison is, if Somalia is anarchy, then North Korea is full, full blown statism, right? So compare the two. Yeah. So if mm. someone says, "Oh, but if you're libertarian, go to Somalia," I was like, "Well, if you love the state, go to North North Korea. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> they, got, they got lots of it there. Yeah, it's a good one. If you, but you won't be able to get into North Korea. That's the problem. <laughs> they're violently racist. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> I think though, I think you can get in. I think it's the leaving part. Hotel California of the yeah. sort of you know yeah. world. Yeah, communist countries were pretty good at letting people in. Not so, not so hard to letting them out. I mean, you might get out, but you know, less like half your brain or something this like that. Through the barbed wire fence. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, no, I lost my train of thought. Yeah. I mean, on a more local level, let's talk about social techno socialism a bit. And more. ANC specifically. Well, I mean, they, they, well, I don't know. Maybe the DA because Sanbat Musi. Sanbat Sanbat Musi as as we've heard him speak, uh, wants a sovereign wealth fund, a sovereign wealth tax, as you say. I think it's important to get the wording right. Yeah. So basically, soak the rich, start a tax, start a fund of sorts, and do with it, no one really knows, uh, in in three sentences, say why that's a bullshit idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we could actually refine the wording a little more. It's not a sovereign wealth tax. It's just a wealth tax that goes to the sovereign like all wealth taxes do. So it's actually the most uh, plain, uh, unoriginal, unimaginative, you know, boring idea, but also also Sam, destructive are, are idea. Are you saying Sambat Musi is boring? <laughs> wow. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I talk about economic policy toddlers, you know, it's these, these guys who, who riff on, on these kinds of ideas with no, proper grounding in, in how economics works, how political economy works. And, you know, if you are still in, in the school where you think South Africa will benefit from more taxes, mm. I mean, I just, there's just it's, no hope. It's because politicians do, <laughs> it's it's no do politicians do things backwards, right? Yeah. So I am trying to be a bit of a scholar of, of, of economics. I'm still learning a hell of a lot. Um, but I, Take the economics I know, and then I go. This would probably be a good idea as a as a policy move. Yeah. Um, politicians choose a policy move, and then they try to uh, motivate it with some with any economic theory they can find. Yeah. And if that's a really bad economic theory yeah. that's been shown to be just a poor idea. Yeah. They don't care because they came up with the idea, and they needed something to motivate their idea. I think that's a good point. I think Musi's probably doing this. He's he's probably saying. Sure, you know, the optics of taxing the wealthy more will probably look quite good, but I need to convince the wealthy. So let's call it, you know, sovereign wealth funds yeah. are quite sexy. It's, Norway has one. Sounds like a good name, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sovereign wealth fund and we'll invest for jobs, you know. Yeah. Of course, the, 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 the first uh, ridiculous fallacy of this is that 
you're taxing wealth that is already invested in places that it is being productive and creating employment. Okay. So now you're going to, you're going to tax that wealth and take it somewhere else to create a fund that creates jobs somewhere else. Okay. So at best, you're just shifting jobs around. You see, you're just making some people unemployed there and a few the more. Government doesn't create jobs. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why, why is this such a difficult thing to understand? Well, in a way, this is quite funny, right? So in a way, Moosey's actually, uh, unknowingly making a, a very astute capitalist argument, which is that if you get a fund together and invest it, it creates jobs. So what he's basically saying is that investment creates jobs. So let's get some investment, guys. Let's not shuffle the but, investment but, but around. But you can't force investment, surely. <laughs> when you try to force investment, do you not do the opposite? You can't, you can't force investment, but you can create conditions for investment. Absolutely. Uh, you can, you know, not say you're going to confiscate people's property. You can you lower can, the tax rate. You can lower the tax rate. You can create uh, incentives. You can create certainty around economic rights and, and property rights, I think, is, is, is critical. Um, you've, uh, and, and you've got to roll back regulations, right? I mean, who would, who would invest in the mining sector right now? Who would, uh, who would invest in? Well, property even is, is, is a bit of a yeah, dodgy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, most, you know, I'm hearing anecdotes of farmers in South Africa, you know, big tracts, big farming districts of multiple farmers with their farms on sale. Can't sell them, but they're just permanently sitting on the, for, with the for sale signs on because, you know, A, the murder rates are ridiculous. B, they don't have any security of tenure of their property. Um, so it's just, you know, so, so, I mean, how to attract investment? Yes, you don't, you don't dictate and force investment. I mean, that's the last thing you need to be doing. But, um, you know, if Moosey got up there and said, uh, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna tax the, the wealthy less and, and try and channel some of this funding that's going into a big sclerotic government into some, some, you know, really well directed private sector capital, and that's going to create a lot of jobs. Oh, go Moosey. That's, that's good stuff. You know? but, but here's the problem. Do South Africans actually know or understand capitalism to a degree where it's just, just, just lay, in, in terms of layman terms? Mm. And I mean, as soon as you speak about the rich or you speak about tax, it's always about ostensibly white people, right? I mean, that's, that's the narrative. Uh, also, capitalism is the new C word. Right. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. So, I mean, I don't know if even if we had to have like a rabid free market political party, I just don't see a place for it. So, so I think that in the um, country as is. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think a lot of people, of course, the average person really struggles to to understand a lot of economics. However, good economics is actually simple economics. It's usually the uh, the nonsense economics that's that gets quite hard to kind of fathom and understand because it doesn't intuitively resonate with the average person. So we know, for example, right, that savings is a good thing. Okay. You save money. It's healthy. If you overspend it and you get into too much debt, that's not going to end well for you. Okay. Everyone knows that. You don't have to be skilled to know that. Keynesian economist says, oh, hang on. If everyone does that, if everyone saves at, at the, at the micro level, if every, if 50 million people do what's good for them, the macro result is bad. Okay. It's utter nonsense. So they've got this total disconnect. So I think that the average person, <coughs> if it's well communicated and well explained, uh, can understand this stuff well. We have to get, and this is something we've spoken about on Facebook as well before, we have to get the communication right. There's a, there's a critical communication strategy 
the evidence is unequivocal and the evidence is powerful that free markets have been, you know, absolutely a force for poverty alleviation. Don't worry, so, we've got uh, we've got spectators. Okay, so absolutely a force for poverty alleviation. Um, the free market has dragged hundreds of millions of people out of squalor. The free market is. Uh, any country that has run a free market system over the last 200 years is the most is one of the most kind, compassionate, prosperous, clean uh, economies. So the you know the environmental uh, impact of capitalism is way less than, than than socialism. I mean, go to go to Russia circa 1990 and go and look at the environmental you know disaster that that, hmm. that China uh, is another example. China as well. So so I think that it's about communicating the ideas well. I would also say, though, that these ideas need to be well communicated to the people that matter. And and I know we think the voters matter, and I'm not trying to trivialize the voters. People ultimately do matter, of course, the voters. But it's the intellectual elites. It's, um, it's the decision makers and the influencers at, at higher levels of society that make a huge difference. Ultimately, uh, if, if you get enough of the right people at the top buying into a good set of ideas, it gets sold pretty easily downstream um, and vice versa. Bad ideas can also get sold pretty easily downstream. So We've so, had 25 years of bad ideas yeah, being sold so, downstream. So, so, so the, We've had since 1652. <laughs> it's just been bad ideas throughout. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I was chatting to some guys at the Free Market Foundation last night and, you know, the ANC came in in 94 and they were a bit dear in the headlights, right? Because they'd been fighting this epic struggle battle. They now had the, the state in their hands. And for various reasons, um, mostly just, just because of how reality played out and because we were still negotiating the constitution and so on, um, the South Africa had a very free market order, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. These were very free years. We had, we had uh, casinos popping up everywhere. This yeah. was before we got the the gambling board, you know, involved, and we had to kind of tell them where they could build. Tell them where they could build, and so on. We had uh, we had a tremendous amount of freedom. We had uh, you know great economic growth um, that persisted into the two thousands and was helped by the commodity boom and so on. But um, so so there was this there was this purple patch right right at the beginning. But we got it right for the wrong reasons. By what by that. And by that I mean that the ANC in that regrouping period where it was kind of letting a laissez-faire-ish system sort of unfold was basically just gathering itself. Yeah, it's a Coolidge period. They did nothing. Exactly. To get its strategy together to launch the National Democratic Revolution, right, which is Len Leninist essentially. Um, and, it, and it does make a great point, and you've just said it about Coolidge, like – if governments, you know, I often say that a rock would make a better, you know, minister than than most of our, our uh, government officials because the rock doesn't do anything, right? The rock just sits on the chair for five years. Pet rocks. Pet rock, and um, and you can actually get on with life and get on with making a country prosperous and, and you know, creating prosperity. I mean, that's the ultimate objective here, right? Is how do we create more wealth? Jobs are a, are a derivative of that, and that's hard to communicate. People think. The economy is about jobs. You know, it's not like people make the argument that you know, green energy is great because it employs more people than coal. And it's like, no, that's actually why coal is so much better. We get the same amount or like way more energy with less human beings. That's the whole point of economics, yeah. right? Yes, that's the Sam whole point Harris. of development. Yes, <laughs> yes, Sam Harris. Yeah, yeah so Sam Harris. Well, Sam Harris doesn't get it at all. I mean, I listen to that. You know, a great thinker um, for, in the most, for the most part made that 
typical era turns around on his own podcast. On his eh? own podcast, he says no, it's, but in the green tech, Trump, well, Trump's I, an idiot to support coal because, yeah, because coal only, only employs twenty thousand people yeah. or something, and uh, renewables employ two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. The point he's missing is yeah. that coal for those twenty thousand produces more energy than all those renewables put together. I mean, I mean that's like that's basically like saying. Um, you know, street lamps don't employ anyone, so let's just cut down all the street lamps and, like, people can stand there with torches on the side of the road. We'll, cre- we'll create, like, a million jobs, you know. You want to dig a trench, build new roads, use a teaspoon, man. Yeah. Don't use shovels. Yeah, it's, a yeah, teaspoon, exactly. it's a teaspoon swimming pool because, argument. Yeah. Don't go, not one guy with a spade. That's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. So, 20 guys with teaspoons. So, here, so here's, here's a classic tell when someone doesn't understand economics. They'll say things like this. Our biggest problem is unemployment. Okay. Um, no, that's the biggest symptom of your biggest problem. <laughs> that's the most glaring and, and, and high human cost symptom. Okay, but the problems are much deeper. The unemployment is a, is a derivative and is a reflection, right? And you hear it all the time. And, you, and Sam Harris, you know, Sam Harris is a really smart guy who, because he is so smart, has underappreciated how to think like an economist. Okay, and he needs to get in the books again, right? Yeah. Because he's a smart guy and he should, and he needs to do himself justice. Well, he also, uh, you know, look, he comes from the left, and the left makes an assumption, which is that yeah. the status quo of yeah. economics is how things are, yeah. are best. And it caps your IQ. No, <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, anyway, the point being that uh, that you've got um, in this debate, just to finish off my my sort of original train of thought, is everyone's. Job obsessed, right? This, you know, Moosey, let's create a sovereign wealth fund to create jobs. Jobs, 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 jobs on the posters, on the, on the street lands. Um, and, and it's basically like just fixing a symptom and you can't fix it. It never goes away. Um, until you get much deeper, right? And so, uh, the real debate, of course, is how do we create wealth? Wealth leads to jobs. Capital leads to jobs because once you build capital, well, cheapers. You need people to operate it, clean it, maintain it, you know, use it, um, create, uh, you know, productive, uh, you know, create products from it. Uh, and so, the, the real question is, how do we build wealth? And of course, the answer to that is just utterly emphatic and unequivocal. That, you know, giving as much freedom to you know peace-loving, hardworking people uh, to to respond to the natural incentives of life. And to their natural uh, uh, skills and talents and, and 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 cooperation and so on, leads to a tremendous amount of wealth creation. And uh, you know that's the debate we've got to start having. So I would like to see us in this whole discourse trying to get that across, trying to get this jobs obsession um, smarter, cleverer, and, and and people discussing it in a much smarter, cleverer way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think you just called me stupid because I once <laughs> well, tweeted that unemployment is our biggest problem. <laughs> I'm sure I've pretty much said that unemployment is a great issue. Yeah, but you guys, well. you, you guys, you guys are getting better at being economists all the time, right? Yeah. So, so you said that in a moment of economic weakness. <laughs> <laughs> also, unemployment can be a bigger pro- a problem, but you can understand the underpinnings. I think I just, I think I just triggered the renegade report. Yeah, you might have, you might have. It's, 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 it's okay. We don't mind being called stupid by our guests. Um, <laughs> Just, can we ever get triggered? I've never been triggered in my life. So I don't know. Well, yeah, Ramon will soon retreat to his corner where he will shake up and down for no apparent reason. Um, 
screaming something incoherent. Uh, so basically, sorry, Jonathan, yeah. I'm interrupting once again. My, my daughter's finally asleep, so I can actually participate. Well, she's not asleep. She's just fascinated with me. <laughs> Someone has to be. Um, so basically, Russell, um, there, there's actually no hope in this country uh, from a political level because no one's actually talking about what you're talking about. Or, or no one's – I don't know if they don't understand what uh, – I mean, we had Helen Zilla in here, and her yeah. obsession is the capable state. Yeah. And yeah, sort of, yeah. yeah. But an incapable state often is, is better because it doesn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the capable state talk, uh, you know um, – is part of this problem of uh, putting the cart before the horse a little bit to some extent. Um, it's a bit like the argument of saying we need a non-corrupt Marxist state. You know, it will inherently be corrupt. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, of course, to the extent that you have a state, well, yeah, let's it make it capable. Properly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but so he has he has the he has the catch right. And I was looking at this in my talk last night uh, when I compare us to other emerging markets. Our government spends about thirty percent of GDP. Taxes and spends about thirty percent of GDP. Well, taxes twenty seven, spends thirty. Deficit of three. One in three rand. The sclerotic, uh, bureaucratic, you know, stifling government spends. And that's obviously a minimum involvement in the economy, right? Because they regulate, they, uh, you know, they're able to um, manipulate uh, the economy in so many ways. So their influence in, in the South African economy, you know, SOEs are not even in, uh, included in that 30%. So their, their effective influence in the South African economy, I would say, is comfortably 50%, um, maybe more. Hmm. Um, and uh, when here's the thing, right? When you have a big government – your margin for it's that's a fragile system because you've centralized you've centralized your your error so if you make an error and it's centralized mm. you're screwed if you make error when things are decentralized yeah. you have much more robustness you have many parts making the error correct mm. um, and you have and you have many parts fixing the error as well you know uh, so that's that's the whole point of this hayekian kind of distributed emergent uh, social order right so um the, the the point here is that if you've got a big government, your margin for error is tiny. So South Africa's got a really big government. Our government is is roughly similar in size to some of these big welfare states, developed market welfare states overseas. Not quite. Some of them more like 40% of GDP, 45. And then your Scandies, you kind of get up to like 45, 50, right? So the Scandinavian countries, everyone thinks how wonderful they are. They've got a tiny margin for error. And as a result, they work damn hard to make sure that they're getting just about everything else right. And that means that they've got just about perfectly free trade. I mean, they're some of the freest economies in the, in, in the world on the economic freedom indices, right? They're in the top 20. I mean, South Africa's languishing. Yeah. Um, so they get a whole lot of things right. Minimal capital controls. Um, you know, minimal, you know, to, to, to some degree, minimal regulation. Certainly not the kind of web of, Ridiculous sort of be, yeah. and it's, that's a lot of the bounce back against the EU, which yeah, is yeah. the EU has, has started to overregulate. Correct, and so this is actually now we can start to put some analytical insights together here, right? So if you've got these massive governments with this creeping regulation of the EU, that's a seriously fragile system. So South Africa has very little margin for error, and we make tons of error, right? So so Helen's talking about a capable state. I'd prefer her to say, let's shrink the state. You know, let's reduce our um, our error exposure, and then make that capable. You know, 
Um, and then, and then let's see, let's reassess. You know, if, mm. if we think that we should go from 15% of GDP to 20 and we can do it capably, well, let's do that. Um, so, so, you know, I, I don't expect her to, to necessarily, uh, grasp, grasp a whole lot of these nuances, but mm. I'd like her to start thinking in those terms because to make a capable 30% of GDP state in South Africa, given our human capital, um, given our ethnic, uh, diversity and political difficulty, um, you know, the other thing the Scandies have is small, culturally homogenous countries, high trust levels, yeah. um, you know, very easy and, and, and high levels of human development and skills, right? It's very difficult for us to staff a capable state because of yeah. our historical legacy of poor education and, and, and poor skills but it's, development. It's right? also what the state is. I mean, capable truck driver, capable ro- rocket scientist. Both are capable. Correct. Right? Yeah. But – yeah. You know, obviously the yeah. one is capable of yeah. far more than, yeah. the, than the other. The other point I would make, and, and uh, Hans Hermann Hopper, who's, who's uh, a pretty radical uh, libertarian pretty uh, radical. and anarchist. Um, he, he's got a book. <laughs> yeah. It's called, but, d- d- sorry, he's right. the, Democracy, the God that Failed. Yeah, Everyone should read that. It's, actually, it's actually a tremendous work of, of political philosophy, yeah, um, even though it's, you know, extremely extreme. But – but he's he's a really smart guy, and he he makes this point, you know, because everyone talks about political competition. We need political competition; that's a good thing. We need the electoral competition, and so on. And he's, he makes the point that you know competition in goods, you know, goods and services, but competition in goods is good, but not necessarily competition in bads, right? So, so to the extent that you've got bads, that the state is producing bads, you don't necessarily need competition in that, right? Like we don't need we don't need a more capable minister of sport. Right, we just need to abolish that stupid ministry. Okay, <laughs> we need to abolish sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roman. Uh, the there he goes again, eh? Hey? Um, there he goes. So, again. so, um, so you know, <laughs> having having capable, and this and this is where I I latch on to to your point about isn't an incapable state sometimes better than a capable state, yeah. and I think that that there's a nuance there, right? Where you need to be capable, genuinely, where the state has genuine legitimate functions. Be capable, but this utter, um, you know, superfluous fat like ministries of sport and ministries of this and the next thing and ministry of and controlling paper. all energy production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, you know, all these things, uh, and and so we don't need competition there. We don't need capability there. We need we need to get rid of that stuff. Yes. You know. So I'd like to see Helen talking more about about cutting huge fat. And um, and then I'd like to see us. There's there's a really interesting. It's actually a bit of a diversion. So so I'll, I'll mention it. We can kind of leave it and come back to it maybe. But um, I'd love to see the provinces that the DA controls. They can be far more antagonistic and subversive to ANC policy. There's there's about twelve areas of provincial uh, jurisdiction where they can really start to push back against national government. And the DA have obsessed over capability mm. and running it well. And I'd like, and, and I think they've basically proven that now in the Western Cape. So cool guys, thumbs up. Well done. Um, my concern is if Helen goes, cause she's, she's really dynamic, right? She's an incredibly strong manager. Can it continue beyond her? If it can't, I, then I'm then I'm critical of the sustainability of that of that structure, and what I'd like to see just to finish off the point is capability. Great, well done. Now let's start getting a little ideological at the provincial level. Let's start doing things smarter, better, 
and in a more subversive way against government and still do it capably. And mm. so that for me would be, if the DA can progress to that, great. Um, All right, well, let's talk about what the ANC is doing because there's a couple of things. First, offline we discussed how the ANC will often sell us, will not sell us. They'll release this incredibly insane notion yes. uh, on anything. Uh, you know, they... They let's use e-tolls as an example. Uh, when they first announced e-tolls, I think it was three rand odd per kilometer. And by the time they had given us our e-tolls, um, the us uh, serfs should be happy for our one rand ten or whatever it is per kilometer, right? And sure. and so they they constantly do this. They do it in in all avenues. Yes. Um, they they give you something outrageous, and then they reduce it to something that's still ridiculous, but mm-hmm. because. You were like, oh, well, that was outrageous. Look, they're being reasonable. Yeah. Um, you kind of accept it. That's the one area I wanted you to talk about. And the other area is um, the controls within the ANC. Who's kind of pulling the levers mm. uh, in terms of economic policy? Okay. First, first question is really interesting. I mean, Jordan Peterson – in one of his uh, interviews a while back now, you guys will probably listen to it. You probably listen to it. He, he speaks about how the the modus operandi of these leftists is to get right up into your face, intimidate you, and you take a step back, and then they back off a bit. But now you're a step back, and then they get right up into your grill again, and you step, you take another step back, and they've never actually hit you, and you're ten steps back. Um, and so he was talking about that, and uh, Scott Adams. Uh, uh, talks about that with with Trump a little bit in Trump's first yeah. offer, right? And so, just on that point, well worth listening to Scott Adams and, and Sam Harris. It is well worth because it's probably to, the first yeah. time Sam Harris gets owned on his own podcast. I, th- I thought I thought Scott Adams was was really good, and I thought he was calm and 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 laid his, his stuff out really well, um, and, and laid out by the way a very uh, out there thesis pretty calmly and pretty pretty rationally. Um, so, so he talks about Trump's first offer, right? And Trump says, "Yeah, we'll deport 10 million people," you know, and and people go get absolutely shocked, and then he deports 100,000. It's like, oh, sure, he only deported 100,000. Sure, that's far, <laughs> that's, that's that's far less than Obama. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> so, so the ANC, and and this is a this is a classic. It's quite a classic Marxist strategy. Um, that you know, ironically, Trump has has uh, adopted in, in his style. Um, and the ANC do it very, very effectively. And I think, you know, it does create this frog in a, in a pot complacency uh, amongst South Africans. You know, it, you'd be surprised how hard it is to sell the idea that we're in a technocratic socialist system. People have been slowly boiled in the system for so long. Um, you know, there's a, there's a columnist, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not mention his name, who's been writing about how there's no shift to the left for 10 years. I think you know who I'm talking about. It's a Max Dupree. No, 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 it's not. It's not. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, All right. Uh, it's uh, Stephen Friedman. Oh, okay. So All I did right. mention his name. Okay, right. but, yeah, but he's been a lefty since forever. Stephen Friedman is someone who poses as a centrist, yes. is actually a lefty, and has been saying for, for ages and ages that we're not shifting to the left. And if you think we're shifting to the left and you're criticizing the ANC for shifting to the left, then you're uh, – he, he makes insinuations of racism and that you're treating you're, – you're judging them differently to how you're judging the Americans. Because, look, the Americans are doing the same thing. Look, they're also printing a whole lot of money. What's the problem? Of course, the problem is that, yes, the Americans are also becoming technocratic socialists, right? <laughs> so, um, And there's a lot more bend in their um, system. And there's more bend, yeah. I mean, like I'll take, you know, I'll take a, sweet, a, a creeping 
Swedish socialism to a kind of Afro-klepto-Marxism any day. Yeah, but you've also got 300 million consumers, most of whom are employed, for example. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I think, I think that, um, the point is that this is absolutely happening and, and you can see it with Mining Charter 3 that's come out. It's, uh, draconian beyond belief. Uh, you know, reading some of the clauses from it, you're just reading pure socialist regulation on a page. It's unbelievable, right? So you wanted to say something? No, no, I'm listening. Okay, so, so, so he, so they put out Mining Charter 3. Everyone goes bonkers and crazy. Um, and, uh, we're, we're, and so we're, we kind of negotiate back to a Mining Charter 2.3 or 2.5, but we've moved in the wrong direction. And, uh, and this is exactly what they do. They've done this with BEE codes. Um, they've done this with BEE codes for, for just about 20 years now, right? Um, you, you just keep tightening the noose, slowly tightening the, loose, the noose. It's very clever. It's very, very insidious, and it's a very smart strategy. And I, and I think that the overarching uh, comment to make about that is that um, we're being played. This, the, the, the left are winning the strategy game, yeah? And it's a little bit like what you were saying uh, about what's happened globally post-Berlin Wall, right? Is that the left, you know, they like to say in America that, that the, the Republicans win elections, but the left wins the culture. Um, and, and so you can have five Republican governments, you can have Republican governors and senators, and you can have a president who's Republican. The left are still winning the culture war. And it's very, very powerful, very insidious, and very, very smart. And someone like Jordan Peterson is right onto this game now because he's trying to go at the heart of what's happening in some of these universities. Um, and he's really trying to subvert what's going on in terms of the postmodern curriculum at, at the universities, which I think is very good. But just to bring it back to SA to say that uh, these guys are doing this. However, I think that they're, that they're now being found out, right? We're having this discussion. More and more people are having this discussion because the data eventually doesn't lie. Eventually, you're just stagnating and you can't blame anyone else. Um, and so... So I think that we're, we're, the game is starting to, to be up for these guys. Yeah, I mean, the left is winning, so to speak, but they were outplayed by the Guptas. That's the best part of everything. <laughs> yeah. Arch capitalists outplayed they, they, the left. Okay, based on that's greed actually, I think, an astute, an astute observation. Well, they got yeah. outplayed. I mean, the yeah. only reason the commies are, are crying and, and the Kosatu is crying is because they're true. not the ones who captured the state. Yeah. State captures been the policy since 1969. Yeah. In the ANC, right? But, but, but the, the communists have captured the ANC. Is that a fair comment? To some degree, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. So, well, so, yes. so definitely, right? So this is, this is now, this is exactly the point, And this is why you, you've actually hit on it, right? Is that SACP and Swilin Zima Vavi and these guys, they're not pissed off because they're state capture. They're pissed off because they didn't get to be the ones who captured the state, right? And, and this is, this is actually the ideological battle now in the ANC is between, um, let's call them, uh, let's call them klepto pragmatists and intellectual, pretty hardcore Marxists. Okay. Good guy in the scenario. So, so here's the thing, right? Is that Malusi Gigaba is, is not like a Rob Davies. Rob Davies is, is an intellectual Marxist. Like he'll, he'll, he'll write you a Marxian analysis of what's going on, right? Through that lens. Malusi Gigaba is, is, is much more in that sense. Pragmatic, but the better word would be non-ideological, to some extent. And and this isn't to, this isn't a comment on his on his intelligence. It's a comment on his ideological uh, framework. 
a bit of a blank slate. Yes. That can be written He's on. Being very nice. <laughs> I would call him clueless. Yeah, well, he, he may be clueless. I mean, it'd be like putting me as, as the minister of finance. Okay, so 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 <laughs> I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disagree with that. I just think my point is about that. So so someone who's clueless can be swayed in different directions by good arguments. Um, so so let's think about this, right? Let's think about a, a hardcore intellectual communist cabal of you know Pravin Gordon and Rob Davies and Tabisi Jonas and Ibrahim Patel and these guys <clears throat> running the key organs of, of state and Jonas and uh, sorry and, and Malusi Gigaba and, and the, the sort of Zuma faction right and you were making an argument to these two different camps in these two different parallel realities to say that we need to drop government spending from 30% of GDP to 20% of GDP, um, or else the, the gig is up. This economy is going to collapse. I mean, I think, who do you think you've got more chance of convincing? Oh, Zuma. Yeah, I think, Zuma, by I, far. I think you've got the Zuma ca- way more chance because bear in mind, for these guys to be kleptos, they only have to steal. There has to be something to steal have, as well. Yeah, there has, yeah. A, there has to be something to steal, and B, they only have to steal a few billion to. You know, greatly feather their nests, right? And that's actually just kind of a rounding error on the macro economy. Whereas, you know, the, the, the communists, they want to misappropriate 1.3 trillion rand a year, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so the, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a sort of nuanced argument. Some people wouldn't, won't like this argument. People get very moralistic about state capture. Well, because and, and, we've, we've, well, now the problem we have is this, this statement we've just made. Yeah. Is, Exactly as you've put it. You said you can choose Zuma or you can choose Pravin Gordon. Yeah. And most people on the street these days, certainly in an urban area no, like d- Johannesburg. Just, just on Twitter. Let's not talk about people yeah. on the street. People on the street have dignity. We're talking about people on Twitter only. But most we'll pe- choose Pravin. Most yeah. people will choose Pravin. Yeah. That's the, the narrative that's been set up. And understandably so because we haven't exactly caused – uh, caught Pravin personally sticking his hands in the cookie jar. Yeah, yeah. Um, his ideology yeah. is all about stealing the entire cookie jar. That he doesn't want to stick his hands in it. Exactly. Um, I think I think you've that's a brilliant way to say it. Basically, he wants the you, cookie you, jar. You've got you've got a group of guys who are engaged in illegal plunder, and you've got a group of guys who are engaged in mass legal plunder, and the the second is way more dangerous. Because it has legal legitimacy, it has political legitimacy, and these guys are very, very shrewd. They are distancing themselves from the kleptocrats and blaming them. Oh, it's because they've stolen a few billion that the economy is suffering. Uh, meanwhile, they have been in charge of all the key levers of, of, of policy making. Yeah. Rob Davies at, at Trade and Industry, Ibrahim Patel in the Economic Cluster, Laden Zamandi in Education, Laden Zamandi, Pravin Gordon in the Finance Ministry, put us in you know one and a half trillion rand more debt, nothing to show for it. Um, oh, we got we got fatter civil servants, please. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so, so these guys are now have they're playing a very shrewd weasel game of getting out of the blame for for causing a stagnation in this economy. You know, our per capita inflation adjusted per capita dollar denominated uh, income per capita disposable income per capita in South Africa is fifteen percent lower than it was in two thousand and seven. Our emerging market peers, peer average, about 40% higher than 2007. So these countries have dramatically outperformed. So we are 55% 
yeah, fifty. We're about six, we're about fifty sixty percent underperforming our emerging market peer group. Just because we're nailing all the sort of moles on the head. Yeah. Um, that whole theory of well, you know, there's been a downturn in the economy, two thousand and eight, and then you know the emerging market really suffered yeah. through that, and 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 since then people have been more cautious. You know, all these things you hear on Bruce Whitfield's show. Um, it's it's such a you know so so let's let's not let's not. Um, Let's not discount the fact the global economy has been super weak. There's massive dysfunction in your Western economies. They're growing at 1%. Japan doesn't grow. Europe hardly grows, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So there's no doubt that we've suffered a, a huge structural blow in 2008. And, you know, unfortunately, from my perspective, it wasn't allowed to correct properly, in which case I think we'd already be having renewed growth and prosperity. But that's a whole kind of separate discussion. The point is, is that, yes, global growth is slower. No one's going to deny that. So that's why you've got to do this analysis against similar emerging market countries. Who've, so, so what are the excuses that the, that the local commies make, right? Uh, it was the, ca- the failure of the capitalist system that has thrust us into this low growth environment. Okay, and emerging markets are, are struggling as a result. So compare us with other, other emerging markets. And then they'll come with the next one. They'll say, I don't know, but commodity prices have taken a huge dive in the last four or five years. Okay, so let's compare us against uh, emerging market commodity producing countries. We underperform on every measure, right? And it's because we are a, a creeping, strangulating, technocratic, socialist, regulatory state. And these guys just won't admit it. And the failure is palpable. It's there for everyone to see. And I just wonder if you're not getting the Zuma faction who basically as an ideological-ish blank st- slate trusted these commies to to actually do something. And 10 years in, I think they maybe they're looking at these guys and going, guys, you, you actually have failed. So now we're going we're gonna to maybe look for some other ideas. And so maybe there's an opening here. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but, I, but maybe there's an opening for for smart engagement with – uh, the executive, um, and you know, if we can drive a wedge between the the current executive and and the Marxists, somehow, I mean, I think that would be very very powerful. Well, well, yeah, I mean, well, the wedge is really being driven uh, because the commies say that Zuma is greedy. <laughs> yeah, because he stole a few billion. Yeah. Meanwhile, they want to steal trillions. I, I think what Zuma's people struggle with in this conversation, you know, most people out there, because we're moral beings. People struggle to hold two ideas in their head like yeah. this. That Zuma stealing is wrong. Yeah. But but like we we're we're we His can, theft is safer. Yeah, but it might be safer because actually, you know, this grand theft that's going mm. on on this side is way worse. And, and and people struggle to kind of fathom that out. And of course there's tons of propaganda in the press. People have jumped onto this narrative that Zuma is the problem. Get rid of Zuma, South Africa gets fixed. Um and they don't understand this very, very powerful, insidious uh, uh, creeping technocratic Marxism 2.0. Um, 220 pages of Marxism came out of this ANC conference. Now that's not written by Mulusi Gagaba and these guys. There's a, there's an intellectual cabal that is sort of still pulling some of those intellectual strings, but I don't think that there's traction from those ideas up into the executive that much anymore. Right. Potentially. Potentially. Right. Yeah. I, look, I think important you need to remove the ideology from the personalities. Yeah. So you need to go, well, this is the ideology that's correct, um, and it's, it, that's what we need to follow. And yeah. you know, yeah. um, replacing Zuma uh, might stop him stealing a little bit, um, but we don't need to replace necessarily the ideology exactly. that was being pushed on that side. Yeah. Oh, 
maybe quickly um, we can just because uh, we have been talking about economics for an hour and twenty minutes <laughs> well, or something pol- like that. More like political economy, actually, which is yeah, quite fun. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But um, you know, someone like Leon Lowe and, and and Franz Cronier, who we had on the podcast, was it last week? Now it was. Um, those those kind of those kind of folks will say, look, you've you've got to change public opinion. That that's the way you you drive. Mm. something forward if you want to change government you've got to get the populace to mm. kind of think one way i mean this is something mm. Julius malema understands mm. if he mm. shouts land enough mm. maybe mm-hmm. uh, enough people will say we won't land and then government will say okay we'll give you it um so at a, our listeners are intelligent people um they understand all of these things and they listen to a lot of stuff and read a lot of stuff um but they might go to a dinner table sometime in the next couple of weeks and start having a discussion. How do they have a discussion with someone who has very little interest in the very detailed parts of this conversation, um, but get them on board? What kind of, what, what kind of conversations do you have with, yeah. with your friends who you know might not be that interested in what you do or yeah. the, the very thoughtful stuff? Yeah. But you can kind of convince them based on the car they want to buy or yeah. the house they want to yeah. buy or so their it's, kids' it's, education. So you're asking – it's it's the toughest and best question of the podcast so far. And it was the best question last night at the Free Market Foundation talk um, by an audience member, which is how do we communicate the message? How do we convince and debate and communicate and, and, and basically change people's minds um, to think more clearly and, and you know more correctly about a lot of this stuff? And um, it, that's a very current uh, sort of grappling and wrestling that I'm going through right now. Uh, one of the one of the sort of inherent difficulties we face is that I think that there's an asymmetry um, in this debate between, say, uh, you know, the the liberty movement or liberals, classically speaking, and and lefties. Um, and that is that they are willing to bend far more linguistic rules than we are typically comfortable doing, right? Because we're uh, people on our side of the interle- of the ideological divide uh, typically say what we mean, mean what we say. We like to use words accurately. We respect the English language or the language that we're using. Um, and so it's very difficult for us to think of smart and clever ways to say things. Whereas what the left will do is they they're masterful at distorting and changing words. So, um, you know, a, a, a classic and very sensitive in South Africa's case example is, the, is this whole idea of transformation, right? This word transformation. It's a very, very positively connotated word, right? You know, everyone wants to transform at some level. I want to be a better human. I want to mature. I want to you know, get wealthier. I want to transform my life to a large degree all the time, right? It's a, it's a good thing. And then particularly you overlay that with a, with a brutal and, and, uh, unjust past, um, you know, of apartheid. And of course, transformation becomes a very, very hot button word. And that word has become a weasel word though, because it, it doesn't actually mean anything specific, right? Transformation is a broad abstract word. Um, it only means something if you apply it specifically. And so, um, so I think in the debate, we need to start maybe using our, uh, natural, uh, sort of, uh, bent towards being more accurate on words and calling people out when they're using weasel words, right? So that's the first, first thing. So if someone says to you, um, you know, you don't, uh, you don't agree in, you don't agree with 
race quotas for sport, you must be anti-transformation. You say, what does transformation mean? Transformation is a broad word. You're not even, you know, what are you talking about? Are, are you mean, are you talking about race-based quotas, racial-based selection? Is that what you're talking about? You know, and get them down to brass tacks on what you're actually discussing. So if, I think the first thing is to try and remove from the left these linguistic tricks and tools that they use yeah. to get kind of the moral high ground. Um, so that's kind of a, a sort of more, I guess, more general comment. Um, but I th- as part of that, as a strategy, I think we've got to be on the front foot. Because of this linguistic trickery that gets played, we're often on the back foot. So so the, the typical response is, so are you saying you're against transformation? Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm not against transformation, but you see, um, and, and you get… Don't you get use their footer. fucking words. Don't use their word. Don't get back their in their face and say to them, excuse me, why are you using the word transformation? What you really mean is race-based quotas, isn't it? What you really mean is racial selection. That's what you're talking about. You get right back in their face and you get on even moral ground with them. And you say, right, we're both human beings who think we're good. We both want justice. We have different ideas of how to get there. Let's talk… With sanity now, so I think that's a really great starting point. And then when it comes to, uh, I would just expand on that that issue of the moral high ground or the moral even ground, the moral level playing field. And I was chatting to some people uh, away, or we, we went away uh, one weekend recently, uh, and we were sitting around the the fire in this old house, and we were talking about the minimum wage, um, and people's initial visceral response to these things. And I think it's because people are just because they haven't thought a lot about these things. And they mean well. They mean well. It makes them feel good. Um, and just calmly, you can just start um, explaining to people how these things actually play out. And, and what I've found is quite powerful is if you individualize the example. So people talk about the minimum wage. you know, And you say, okay, hang on. Would you be willing to come to me, Russell, and my domestic worker? You personally, would you, be, would you come and knock on my door? And ask me what I'm paying her. And if I'm not paying her to your liking, would you then yank her out of my house and say that she may no longer work for me anymore and then find me? I mean, would you personally do that to me? Is that how you want to operate? And, and, it, and it gets, it, it shocks people that because I think a very, very powerful way to think about how the state operates is, you know, would you personally have the moral courage to do what you're requiring the state to do? So not physically and technically, right? Okay. So, so, you know, um, if I think that if you, if, if my view was that if you don't pay your tax, you should go to jail. Okay. Would I do that to you? Would I, Russell, personally, do I, am I that offended by a Roman Kaepernick not paying his tax that I would come knock on your door, wrestle you down, handcuff you, and throw you in the back of a van? It's utterly ludicrous, right? And you get people to start thinking philosophically about these things. And you, and you, you can even give people very real world examples. You can say, you know, what if, what if I'm a, what if there's a guy who struggles to get by every month, but if he saves enough and if he's prudent enough, he has 800 rand left at the end of every month spare and he would love a domestic worker. It's absolute peanuts to pay a domestic worker 800 rand a month, right? But he goes down the street and he finds under a bridge, someone sitting under this bridge, utterly destitute, no food, no money, barely any clothes. And he says to this person, look, I've only got 800 rand. You don't have to come work for me. I'm not forcing you. But if you are willing to come clean my house and rake my leaves in the garden for a month, I'll pay you 800 rand. And the person says, you know what? That's a damn sight better than living under the bridge with no food. And you tell that example to someone who wants a minimum wage of 2,500 or 4,000. And they just, they eventually just sort of crumble under the weight of the 
the obvious injustice of, of requiring you to ban that sort of economic activity. So that's quite cool. You can do this in loads of cool ways. Yeah, I mean, if you personalize it, it's much easier. But but learn about persuasion. Uh, listen to Scott Adams. Yeah, I Scott think you're Adams right. Ha- yeah, Persuasion techniques are important. Scott Adams has no ideology. I still don't know if he's a libertarian or a conservative or like a liberal. He never actually says so. He says I mean, in the Sam Harris podcast, with, he, would, he, he would say he that he's – some on both, That right? socially he's kind of – Hyper liberal, yeah. Um, but yeah, he's. Quite but I think I think deliberately he plays this this yeah. ambiguous space, and I, I think that's cool as well because I think he's he would probably say that he he's he's fluid. <laughs> um, but 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 the point is, um, I think you're right. We we need to understand persuasion skills, um, and but the other thing I would say is that people respond to authenticity. Yeah. So 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 authentic persuasion, not not like. Sales me, pitch, right. you know, crappy sales pitch persuasion. And for God's yeah. sake, don't talk about the fucking gold standards and whether we need driving licenses. <laughs> for God's sake, no one cares. Talk about the well, small uh, stuff first. You know, d- yeah, exactly. Don't accelerate it to, um, yeah. you, you know, you do this sometimes. Taxation is theft. Sometimes we mean tax. There's a way to do it better. Has I, I, use. You know, there's also the other thing is to sometimes. Um, Unmask the cognitive dissonance people have. So I mm. recently gave a talk to a bunch of dietitians. Um, the second year I've done it in a row and they're a great group to speak to. Uh, yes. And I asked an online questionnaire before I went to speak to them. And uh, the the talk was all about the sugar tax and, and whether it's ethical to have a sugar tax. And, it, you know, I wanted to discuss ethics originally because that's what the talk was about. Yeah. Um, but I had to go into the background around tax and sugar tax itself and sugar and what its negative causes are or aren't and what the data says. So it actually turned into quite an economics yeah. and a bit of economics and a bit of healthcare um, talk and then a little bit of ethics at the end. Because mm. um, depending on how you read the data and how you buy the economics depends on whether you think a sugar tax is ethical or not. Yeah. But as part of the questionnaire that I asked them, I said to them, look, um, how many – of you think a sugar tax is a good idea, yes or no? About 55% of the group. Uh, and then I asked them how many of them would choose to pay no tax to SARS if they could. About, I think it was about 90% would pay no tax if they could, yeah. um, or 85%. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there's this massive cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. Yeah. They think a sugar tax is a good thing, yeah. but they all wouldn't pay tax if given the, if given the choice. Um, and so I think you can find these things in people quite mm. often. Mm. Uh, you know, the tax is theft example. Uh, if you sell it straight off the bat like that, mm. no, of course, uh, people don't, don't yes. necessarily buy it. Yes. But if you, if you say to them, listen, do you think the government's spending your money well? You know, most people yeah. will probably answer no, yeah. they're not. Yeah. Um, so why do you pay them <laughs> these kinds of discussions? So, so I think, um, I think that's, that is important and true, but it's also audience specific in the sense that yeah. there's, there's a certain kind of person. And like I would say, Jonathan, you're probably this kind of person that if you get smacked with a cognitive dissonance episode in your brain. Yeah. You can hear it on this podcast. Uh, um, <laughs> what's his name did it to me? Uh, 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 Sikle. Okay. Uh, that's Sikle. Yeah. I mean, I, he, Sikle you know, I got, I got yeah. owned on this podcast yeah, yeah. in that particular episode. So, so, so now, whenever that happens to someone in a conversation, you probably don't admit it. You try and, you know, cognitive, cognitive your way out of it. You know, you, 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 you're a bit of a mess. But then what happens is you'll go home 
and you'll think about it and it'll gnaw at you and, and, and you'll grow. You'll intellectually just progress mm. some more and it's great, right? Now, I think everyone is wired somewhat to respond like that, but, but a lot of people first respond emotionally and, um, and morally and ethically, right? And here's my point. No one's going to change a view, their view about life and about themselves and about society if they think that holding that view makes them a worse person, makes them morally inferior than they were before. And so it becomes, I think, very critical to, to help people understand free markets and capitalism uh, in that moral and ethical context, right? <clears throat> in this idea that you can actually not be a socialist – you can be someone who's pretty radical you know, for freedom and you're actually a good person and the things you're advocating help real people, help poor people, help rich people, help everyone to get ahead uh, and, um, and that you can do that with a clear conscience. And I think if we can unlock that, and I don't necessarily have the key <laughs> and I'd like to get the key, but if we can unlock that in people's minds and hearts, um, so to speak, I think we're making progress. I think we're winning. Um, and I think a big barrier in South Africa, let's call a spade a spade, is that apartheid equals capitalism. It's fallacious. It's wrong. That's not actually true. Okay. Yeah. Apartheid was one of the most successful, uh, ironically, socialist states. Mm. There's a good article, Rational um, Standard, recently, yeah, recently yeah. wrote on this. So, but, but as long as there's that, so, so, so now, so the question is, how do you, how do you f- figure out a way to unmoor and unshackle that perception? of capitalism and apartheid and actually start tearing them apart because the emotions bound up around that for black South Africans are immense. Um, and, and there's just no convincing people about liberty and free markets. Um, and you know, if you say the C word, that's it, particularly going to hurt you um, because it's bound up with white supremacy, racial injustice, and you must be advocating that because it benefited you in the eighties and seventies. So there's a trust deficit there and there's an understanding deficit there. And so um, we've got to think about how we get over that. I'm, I don't have all the answers in this this segment, but like that I think, you know, as we engage as the three of us and, 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 and people that we, uh, that we consider ideological, you know, compatriots, if you like, as we figure out ways to, to bring uh, truth to people and to help people understand, you know, how, economics and political economy work, we've got to be really smart about, about strategy. And, and uh, I look forward to kind of figuring out cool ways to do that with you guys. Awesome. Should we call it there? She's smart strategy from us. Uh, Russell, it's going to be a very long project, my friend. <laughs> I'm smart, but strategic, I well, don't know. <laughs> well, if, if, if our listeners want to start on that, uh, on that road, we yes. are having a uh, – Dinner and presentation with Franz Kronier. Indeed. And Russell may be in attendance. I think I'll be there, yeah. Not that I'll ask you to speak, but I mean, you can meet Russell too. <laughs> I could do a 10 minute curtain raiser. You can pick his brain. Um, that's going to be on the 17th of August. Indeed. In Johannesburg, in Parktown. Yeah. All details are on the Renegade Report Facebook page. I mean, I've been, I've been tweeting about it and posting it every day for yeah. the past uh, week. So you yeah. should get an idea. If you don't know anything about it, Email us. Renegade Report Mailbox at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. Obviously, Ramon at Roman Kabanak. Myself at Jonathan underscore Witt. 
we uh, obviously like you to join our Facebook uh, page. Not only like us, but we have a Facebook group where we discuss stuff. Uh, people bring up varying points of views. It's a lot of fun. I'm on that group. Yeah, it's, it's it fun. is a lot of fun. Um, and we engage different ideas and, and don't just kind of shut people uh, down. And, and arguably like quite uh, controversial ideas. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting to see the different um, variety of responses from from black, white, Alaskan there's an Alaskan yeah. on the group. Bloody, we must kick the Alaskan. Off, am, am I on the on principle? <laughs> am I on here? Because uh, yeah, you are. You're, you're on. You're, uh, that idea of a of a safe space for dangerous ideas. Very, very clever. Very cool. I think that's. Thank I think you. That's, I, think that's, I, I, I made it up. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right, and did uh, I, John? Did I, John? He did. He yes, did. He finally. did make that up. He made I'm, that up. Um, Right, so um, thank you very much, obviously, to our special guest today, your daughter. I'm joking. She was very, very good. Thank, yeah. thank you to Russell Lamberti. He's at Russell Lamberti on Twitter. Right, so um, a bit of a longer podcast. Uh, let us know if you like it. Um, hmm. I mean, it's easy with Russ because he's a good friend of ours. Yeah. But sometimes it's not so easy. But Ga- if you like longer podcasts. We the ga- the guys who survey wanting short podcasts are going to be spitting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can, uh, as they've told us, they can listen to this in one and a half speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly. <laughs> so it's actually an hour and a half. It's actually only half the, the well, the, well yeah, an hour exactly. or so. Um, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. This is CliffCentral.com.